Cancer journey is unique for everyone. It is time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to episode 18 of the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast. I'm Jen Cochran. My guest this week is Dr. Susie Carmack. She's a well-being promotion researcher, strategist, author, and scholar. Dr. Carmack is transforming the way that well-being is experienced in healthcare, workplace, and education settings. She's the author of three books, including Genius Breaks and The Wellbeing Ultimatum. She's an international speaker who has delivered over 150 customized keynote talks and tailored training workshops. And she has personally coached over a thousand leaders to optimize their well-being. She teaches in the Graduate Healthcare Management Program at the American University and trains the future well-being coaches of tomorrow to become board certified by the National Board of Health and Wellness Coaching and researches the effects of well-being coaching on clinical outcomes through her online academy, Yoga Medco. Her inspired research agenda is dedicated to exploring the unique well-being needs of high achievers, healthcare providers, educators, and leaders in high-stakes fields such as military and law so that they can handle the unique performance demands they face in their work and their everyday lives. Her current research explores the unique coping, performance, and well-being needs of high performers by investigating the impact of the conditions of burnout, compassion fatigue, maladaptive perfectionism, and stress contagion on their professional performance and quality of life and the ways that well-being coaching can help these humans to prevent or manage these challenges. I met Susie a decade or so ago when she was wearing the hat of master yoga teacher trainer. She's a movement champion, thought leader, and a melanoma survivor, and I'm proud to have her as both a yoga and health and well-being coaching mentor. I'm so excited to have her share both her story and her research with you here today. Welcome, Susie. I'm so happy to have you here today sharing your story with Monoma. It's an honor to be here, Jen. Thank you. I would love for you to just jump in and tell the listeners about your story and how that journey has impacted you. Absolutely. Well, like I said, I just want to start by saying I'm really grateful to be here. I think what you're doing with these podcasts is really important. You know, I I think that personally uh, for my own journey to get a chance to share this and maybe help some other folks, but also professionally, as you mentioned in my bio, I'm a communication researcher. I came into that prior as a communication artist. (laughs) I'm all about the communication. Oddly enough, I was a shy kid, but that's maybe another story for another day. But this idea that whatever we've got going on in our lives, it's so important for us to help each other make sense of it. And it's this whole thing, like we're each our own little author, playwright, director, producer of our lives, right? To think about how even in our plot lines of things happening to us, that we can choose how we keep that story moving forward to where we want it to go, I think is so key. And so when I think about this podcast and what you're doing with all the folks that are here, it's really important. So thank you. It's just way cool, which is probably not way cool to say. I own my nerdiness. I'll paint a picture for you, actually. The the thing I think about when I flash back to all of this in the little movie, people's minds as they 
listen here. It's 2010, and I'm teaching a yoga class at Northern Virginia Community College, a great little, well, actually not so little community college. It's one of the biggest in the country. Teaching a little yoga class. That's a phys ed class, and I'm a yoga teacher. I'm a yoga teacher trainer. I've got kids, but living that busy mom life that we all live, right? I'm between classes. My classes are back to back. I had just been sent pictures from a workshop that I had been doing, and it was really funny that in one of the pictures, it was a picture of me teaching yoga to bring into their offices. So it's a picture of me teaching yoga in a dress, <laughs> actually, which is an odd thing that I do a lot, showing people how they can bring yoga into their lives. And so the photographer had taken a picture of me with this group of people in business suits and me in my dress doing this little yoga pose. And he did a close-up that saw my neck because I'm thumbing through these photos and it's always kind of odd to be seeing yourself in a photo like that, at least for me it is. And so I look again and I, I flip back and I see this dot in my neck. And I'm like, oh, there's something on the picture. And I thought, oh, no, wait, that's not my computer screen. That's actually something. I thought, well, that's a weird looking freckle. And it's kind of giant to be a freckle. I never would have noticed it, frankly, if that picture had not been taken. So I thank that photographer for that. So here I am looking through these pictures. I don't have a lot of time. I'm looking at my watch. I'm making this micro decision. Oh, gosh, I guess I should go to the dermatologist about this. My head's telling me there's 100 things you need to be doing, including getting ready for your next class. And I thought my gut, that big voice that's inside was like, call the a dermatologist. And so I've learned for a lot of reasons to listen to that big voice. And so I did. Oddly enough, I found a place nearby and they said, oh, well, we normally have a month long waiting list, but we actually have some space in our schedule today. Would you be able to come in? And I said, sure. I should probably say that my dad also has had skin cancer. Thankfully, he's a happy and healthy 87 year old right now. It felt more urgent than it might for others who don't have that family history. Yeah, but because so much of my life is about promoting healthy lifestyles, prevention, getting ahead of problems, not being afraid to reach out to medical when you need it. I thought, okay, I've got to take advantage of this. So when I made the call, there was that part of me that's just like everyone else. I had 20 other things to do. I was thinking it was nothing. There's also a little bit of fear, but I thought, all right, I got to call. Well, fast forward. Next thing I knew, I was in the doctor's office. They said it was of concern. They took a graft quickly and they said, well, you need to come back because we're going to need to do a biopsy. So in the space of an afternoon, things happened pretty fast. I can go forward into the equally tough part of the story. I'm thankful, first of all, that I had the miracle really of being able to get through the system and get that appointment quickly. I shudder to think about what that would have been like if I hadn't. Fast forward just about a week or two later, I went back. I have to say, although I could not be more grateful to the dermatologist that helped me because he truly saved my life. I went in, it was a biopsy. I remember the aide brought me into the room. She said, well, wait here, doctor will be in soon. And I, I waited and I waited and I waited. And it's one of those like auto lights turn off places. And then it got really dark in the room. And I just remember thinking, wow. And at the time I was finishing my PhD in health communication. So I'm already like sensitive to the fact that there wasn't a lot of warm fuzzy going on. And I've had mixed thoughts about talking about it this way because the big picture is, yes, I could not be more grateful for the care as far as like solving the health problem that I got. But I'm sitting there, I'm obviously scared. I'm trying to make sense of things. I'm also going to get back, you know, to school and the whole thing. Waiting and waiting and waiting well after the appointment. Probably about a half an hour later, they come in. Every now and then I'm having to stand up and wave my arms to turn the lights back on. So that was actually kind of funny. I'm like standing in the room by myself, waving my hands around. So then they came in and the doctor just said, hello. And the nurse went over to the corner because, you know, they have to be having a nurse in there. He just said, okay, lie down and turn to the side. And I did. He numbed the area, which is on my neck. And he 
did his thing in about probably 30 minutes, but he didn't say a word to me throughout the process. He didn't say a word to me in the beginning of here's what's going to happen. Here's how this is going to go. Please tell me if there's a problem. He didn't say, please be incredibly still because I'm working right next to your carotid artery, which because I had anatomy training, I was mentally painfully aware of. I just heard him breathing. It was just a really oddly, and the nurse was just there in the corner, I think, just not even knowing like what to do. <laughs> God bless her. Then the whole thing was over. He came back around the table kind of facing me because I had been facing away from him. He just said, well, I'll let you know what we find. It was really hard to get the margins. And then he walked out of the room. Yeah. And so I write about this at the beginning of my book, Wellbeing Ultimatum, not so much about that part of it. So it's actually really healing for me to be able to tell the story right now. So thank you for that. I also write about it because I'll never forget getting up after he left, trying to kind of figure out where I was, walking out of the hospital room and like through the lobby. I was kind of tired and foggy, obviously. And I remember walking into the elevator and it was one of these hospital type multiple providers in the same building kind of places. I got in the elevator and I just remember my head was thinking like, oh, I have so much to do getting back to being a life of a busy mom and grad student. But I thought, wow, I've got my whole life happening right now. How much time do I have? And this is no longer a blanking dress rehearsal. And I know that's such a cliche. I really was like, this is it. I've spent my whole life helping people to savor the quality of their lives. And I feel like I've had moments before where I've appreciated how life is fleeting. My mom died when I was 17. So I've always been, unfortunately, very aware about how little time we all have. But in that moment, it was like, there was this thing that clicked. And I, on the one hand, was incredibly, you know, sad slash scared, but I was, it gave me this kind of fierce fierce hope that it was kind of like, no, we're going to do this and we're going to do this right. And whatever this is going to end up looking like, I'm going to just not necessarily just enjoy it, but I'm going to drive this from moving on. Like, I'm not going to be this passive person that just sits there and lets this person that I barely know literally cut my neck. <laughs> the antithesis of power. I'm going to drive this narrative where this goes forward. I'm not going to be afraid of whatever the result ends up being. I had more confidence, I think, in that weird elevator fogginess, then I think it, it shifted a lot of things for me. The fast forward, I guess, is that what happened the next appointment a few weeks later, or even a, a week later, actually, was very fast how it all moved through. They brought me back. I didn't know. They didn't tell me what my results were over the phone. I obviously am going there thinking it's going to be not good, you know, because they're not saying things on the phone. I'm studying communication and disclosure, so I know that. And I got in there and then the doctor said, well, actually, we did get it. We got all of it. We got the margins and it was stage two, but we got it all. And so like in the space of a sentence, I found out that I had a pretty threatening thing and that it was gone. I cried, I laughed, and I was like, you know, all kinds of feels, right? And then the other kind of image that pops up into my head, I, you know, I, I, I kept up with my treatment plan. I kept back with the six months. It was always this weird thing because I almost felt guilty about disclosing that I had cancer because it was such a fast journey for me. But the thing that I'll, as I get choked up here saying, the funny moment that I get all choked up about is I got into this routine that every six months I would go back with this mixture of gratitude and foreboding, wondering if anything else was going on. Dermatology visits aren't fun. Mammogram squishes aren't fun. And standing there naked while someone stares at your skin <laughs> as you're, you know, aging into your middle forties is not fun either at the time, you know, I'm in my fifties now, but you know, okay, like, let's do that. If that's what that takes. I kind of lost track, I guess. The appointment that I'm getting choked up about, ironically enough, the nurse 
nurse comes in and I'm expecting to see the same doctor. Well, a different doctor came in and I was kind of like, oh, hi. And, you know, and he said, well, so, you know, I don't want to name doctors here for obvious reasons. So, but it's right. a, you know, Dr. X, your, your current doctor is out this week, but I'm here to help you. And I'm like, okay. And he looks at my chart and he goes, congratulations. And I, this is before he even did the exam. And I was like, what? He goes, you saved your own life. And so that's why I get so choked up telling that part of the story after all that crap, after all that hard stuff. Cause, uh, and I kind of, you know, broke down right there and like, I had met him like three seconds before and he said, you made the five year threshold, you saved your own life. That both hit the reality. I think when we're focusing on prevention or we're focusing on getting things early, it's easy to make light of it, right? I don't mean to imagine what it's like to have a, a more serious diagnosis, a stage three or a stage four. I do know as a family member, I've seen both my sisters pass from cancer. My brother has had it. He's in a second bout, good fight with it right now. No one knows each other's story deeply. We can kind of see each other's story and hold each other up in that process. But I will say that when he said those words to me, it was both euphoria because <laughs> I realized I had like lost track. I didn't realize I'd gotten there already. And especially for my children, you know, to be there for them after having lost my mom is a big piece of that. But it was also like, this was more serious than I, I don't know. You don't, you don't necessarily want to have those dark conversations with yourself all the time. So that is my story. Thank you for letting me share it today. I remember reading that story in the beginning of your book and just being outraged by the lack of communication that you received when I had my ultrasound, just my ultrasound, I mean, of all the pieces and parts, I remember the tech saying, all right, so we're going to go in there and then I'm going to do some looking and then I'm going to step out and I'm going to talk to the doctor. The radiologist is going to come in and do some looking. So there's no reason to be worried mm -hmm. when I step out. Amazing. And just those words walking back to the room when she stepped out, I was like, okay, mm. no problem. And yeah. I also had that like intuitive knowing. I knew that we were finding something. I knew the tech that did my mammogram had found something. I had been getting tapped on the shoulder to go get that mammogram. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. for circumstances that I've talked about before, I was delayed in getting that. Because mm -hmm. I didn't try. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But right. one of the things that's come up with other folks that I've interviewed is this interesting perspective. And I wasn't present to it until a previous guest had talked about it. She had lost her dad cancer, a different type of cancer than she was diagnosed with. It was just like a year before her diagnosis. Wow. And she had melanoma. In that time of getting that diagnosis, you know, you go to that place of what happened to your loved one, mm -hmm. which was very interesting for me because... My dad has had bladder cancer for like 25 years. They just happen to find it. He thinks he had an exposure during a chemical fire. Wow. Because he worked for a gas company for his entire career. They did a procedure. The first tumor they found was the size of a golf ball. They took it out. They screened him in three months. They found a few cells. They took them out. They screened him three months. At some point, he went, you know, six months or nine months. And when he had the first surgery, we went home. Like, I live away, so I went home. So I was there. Right. And then after, like, the third surgery, he was like, where's my gift? <laughs> I was like, you know, when you get surgery every three, six, nine months, there's no more. Like, oh, that's cute. 
no more gifts. Like this is not <laughs> like part We of- don't want to positively reinforce this, right? <laughs> oh, that's a great story. And he had gone like seven years of mm. screening and then they had found another one and it was a new doctor and the doctor was like, well, maybe we should put you on chemo. And I was like, whoa, hold the, stop the boat. Right. Is there something different about this? Like why that's never been a thing before. Mm-hmm. What's different about this? And he was like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then they did, they took it out and he went back for the follow-up thinking he was having a conversation about chemo. And I had asked these questions. So he was going to ask some questions mm-hmm. and he texted me and said, Oh, the doctor changed his mind. Like everything looks fine. He doesn't think there's any reason to do that. Like he was expecting to see redness or, and everything's fine. So it's, it's okay. I don't have to, like, I don't have to consider that now. Wow. But it's been like a maintenance thing because it was found early. A lot of times you hear people being diagnosed with bladder cancer and it's stage four and it's not recoverable and terrible. Right. And unfortunately, in his case, it was routine. They saw some microscopic blood and were like, huh, where is that coming from? And then they looked. Right. And it was just a doctor following the breadcrumbs to say, okay, well, this isn't normal for you. What's there? Right. And so when I had my diagnosis, I was kind of like, well, these things happen and this is early and... Yeah. I never kind of went to that place, but it is, it's all about our perspective. You and I have talked about communication and, and when you have to share with someone that you're having surgery or that you're going to be out for a few days or the response we get is not about us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's not about the thing that we have going on which in all cases is major for us because it's happening to us. It's our body. It's a surgery. It's whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. So for us, it is important and it is significant. Right. It's tricky being, I guess, this work-life well-being scholar that I am. I guess that's, there's a lot of difficulty I have in actually describing my work, which is ironic after all these years of communication training and work. But this space of like, there's a different meaning. I'm going to come clean here with your listeners. Sometimes it's like, I have a, I have a medical appointment. We know what that medical appointment is. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to eat my lunch. And then other times I do have a medical appointment and yeah, sorry, I'm not going to make that meeting because no, I'm not undoing that particular medical appointment that is, is super critical. And it's hard because it's being caught between rock and hard places. And the part of me that's a worker sees this incredible thing that's happening and I don't want to let my team members down. You know, sometimes it's not even about us exerting our influence individually. It's usually about not wanting to let people down, right? Managing their impressions of us, of course. And depending on how high or low we are in the chain, we have more or less power to exercise those things, which is a whole other layer to this. And then on the flip side, how we're sharing out when we're going through things. I have a story where recently some folks I'm doing some research with, they were kind of like, oh, well, we missed you at such and such. In this micro moment, I had to decide, do I want to say, yeah, I'm sorry, I missed it. And just, you know, period, end of sentence or say, I actually took a few days off unexpectedly to help support my dad and taking care of my brother and his cancer journey, which is what I ended up saying. And I think it was probably jolting to my 
colleagues and I apologize to them for that. But I feel like it's almost like the mini championing that I try to do and supporting people. Like we do need to talk about these things. Talking is where healing happens. We, how we make sense of our story is the beginning of either embracing the reality of what's tough and asking for help in that or getting us out of dark places where hope is not occurring. We can write ourselves right back into hope again. You know, I can have hope that I have people that I can, you know, reach out to and in lean on and vice versa. I can have hope for a better prognosis, but you know, it's not surprising that literature will tell us that hope and well-being are intrinsically linked. And to me, I'm not a hope. This is funny, like in research geeky land, like I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go getting into the turf of my, uh, my colleagues that are in that space directly. But I feel like the way a person makes sense of their story is that is the kind of the, the foundation we need to be able to go into that space of hope. I'm really grateful, like I said, that you're doing these talks with folks. I think there is power to hear each other's stories, how we can realize the times that we had these harder times and how we can have hope. Kind of final thing I'll say on all of that is that the folks that study health communication in the cancer space, also something I admire, I don't get into deeply, but know enough to kind of summarize, I guess, here, the research changes every day. So my colleagues can correct me if I'm wrong. But essentially, how a person tells themselves a story of their cancer, the transformation that happens as humans, first, we feel like it's coming on us and we're, I'll use that victim framing, you know, it's happening to me. We may or may not feel like we have power over it. We may or may not feel we have power in the healthcare system to navigate what's going on. It's all kind of flooding in and we're trying to build our health literacy, which is the fancy way to say trying to figure out what the heck is happening, what the heck that illness is, what that looks like. We're also struggling with something that I think we don't call out enough in uh, maybe healthcare modeling, which is we're struggling with disclosure. We're struggling with how we're telling ourselves the story. We're struggling with that we embrace the fact we have it or not. We're ignoring it or accepting it. We're identifying with it. We struggle with how we tell our loved ones. The people who study this fun facts is that they usually when a person gets a diagnosis, they go online, not just to Google it <laughs> and to find out the information, which is, you know, it's all good. They're trying to make sense of what it means for them. And they're also maybe directly or indirectly trying to figure out, well, who else is out there that has gotten through this? And so there's this interesting advocacy reach out that happens. And then as they assimilate all that information, then they start to think about disclosing to their family and friends, which many say is actually harder than the, pro the problem itself or the, even the chemo, you know, to disclose to the people we care about. So then we start to shift into survivor framing. You know, we're surviving it. We're moving through this. We're getting this. We're fighting this. And then we move into advocacy sometimes, you know, and I would say, Jen, you were totally in that role and then some with such a great gift as this podcast. But this idea that people can link that into hope, like I'm not just going through this and having this happen to me. I'm not just fighting this. You know what? I'm going to help others through this journey too. And then, so there's this beautiful circle. The social support that we need in the process is just as critical, in my opinion, as the chemo, right? Or the radiation or whatever the treatment may be. Knowing that we can ask for that help and receive it is healing. And the data shows us that our heart space will tell us that. We don't need data to tell us that. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I definitely want to talk more about the sense-making piece because when you introduced me to that last fall, it set off all kinds of light bulbs for me about how I had walked through my journey. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about sense-making and how that helps us on our journey. Enjoying the Cancer Cliff Notes podcast? Come on over to the Facebook group where you can join the community and participate in the conversation during the week. I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. We're back. I'm here with Susie and we were talking about her experience with melanoma. One of the really interesting things and 
I see this happen over and over and over where people get exposed to exactly what it is that they need in the time that they need it. Mm -hmm. And I had this really weird week last fall. Two different people sort of implied that maybe I had walked my cancer journey and not quite the right way. Mm. One had suggested that people wouldn't root for me. My story wasn't compelling. And the other was really attached to the fact that I hadn't felt sad enough Mm. about my situation. Because these two things had happened in the same week, it gave me pause to sort of step back and go, well, wait a minute, maybe I didn't do it right. Did I do it right? Uh, Maybe I didn't do it right. Maybe I should look at that. And then I was on a call with you and you started talking about sense-making theory and communication and how that can apply to our well-being. And all these light bulbs just started going off for me. Like, I didn't do it. I did it right. I did it right. I did it the way that I was supposed to do it because that's my sense-making fell right into that cobblestone path. So I would love for you to share about that theory and that approach to well-being. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that it was helpful to you. You know, I I feel very, as we've talked about in the first half, very much about it's our life story. That's, you know, we call it that for a reason. You know, it's our story and it's this little movie that we get to write every day and edit and be the audience as much as the producer, the main star. So it makes me sad that folks for, you know, through no fault of their own, will will give them a break, you know, had you feeling that way. But then I'm also glad that you saw you get to decide how you make sense of your story. And that's kind of ultimately what sense making is about. It's like ask, I don't know, ask a banking guy about banking and they'll talk for three hours. Ask a researcher about her theory and like, uh oh, you know, you don't have enough time here on your podcast. But um <laughs> but I'll, so I'll try to be brief, even though I get all like super nerdy, happy, excited about it. So when I was getting ready to do my my dissertation, I was studying health communication, very, very grateful for George Mason University. I was funded to get my PhD through them and it changed my life. So I want to give them a shout out that they took a chance on this yoga teacher who just knew that storytelling and mind body medicine was important and somehow wanted to learn how to promote that. And that's kind of how I showed up on their door in my yoga pants. They took a chance on me and allowed me to be a funded scholar to study there. So I will always be in their debt in that way and very grateful for Dr. Gary Krebs and his mentorship of me. How I stumbled on sense making, I think explains it a bit. So I'll tell that story. I'm heading towards the end of my time and you have to come up with your dissertation topic. I really realized that all this mind body work I had done for so many years in yoga, Pilates, more the movement end. I never had thought about it before, but so much of that private work I did for well over 15 years was listening to people's stories and helping them to somatically embrace them, to accept if they had an illness, whether or not they liked it, to deal with hard stuff in their lives. That a lot of times I was just engineering ways for them, maybe not to rewrite their story, not my place to tell them how to write it, to maybe think differently about the way they were seeing it. And almost like an editor tells an author, and then the author still gets to decide how to go forward. So that was kind of happening in one end. And on the other, I was really wanting to start promoting these mind-body solutions and helping the public to not have a lot of the stigma that goes with it. That's another call for another day. But I was like, where am I going to land for this dissertation? I spent a good six to eight months studying well-being as a construct, and that would turn into 
well over a year and a half, but I started out just trying to dissect what the heck it was. We use that term well-being. It can be happiness, life satisfaction, feeling good about our lives, the good life, all those things. And, and all the literature, oddly enough, in that science space is hilariously, sometimes even contradictive. Like there's almost street fights in the, in the well-being scholarship about it's this, no wait, it's that. So I got to a place where I wanted to be in deference to these scholars that had come before me and to my right and left, because there's a lot of well-being scholars at Mason actually. But at the same time, I was like, I think it's just as much a process of making sense of your story as it is the thing that results when that happens. So if I can make sense of my cancer story, then I can have happiness and I'm helping someone else. I can have hope of my life going forward. I can have a sense of thriving in my life, no matter how difficult my medical journey might be like that. So what if well-being was a process? When I started heading down that lane, I was nudged to check out the sense-making literature. There's probably about five different scholars that all look at sense-making in a different way. Essentially, it's about what people are probably doing right now. As they listen to me, they're trying to make sense of what sense-making is. Think about when you're writing a paper or you're writing a report. You have all this data, all this stuff, and your opinions and your perceptions, and you kind of take a breath and you go, okay, who am I writing to? And what do I really want to say? And how does this all come together? And what needs to be kind of left on the table and what needs to be amplified? That's the north that I'm going to head to. Sense-making as specifically Brenda Durbin's work, who's not as well-recognized as some of the other sense-making geeks. She was a library scientist and still is. This idea that if we can decide, like, what's my north? What am I driving to? What's the goal, the outcome I'm trying to get to? Imagine a little person seeing flags down the road, like your GPS on your phone, your destination on your map quest. I'm going to a place where I'm thriving even if I have cancer. I'm going to a place where I'm seeing myself at my kid's graduation. I'm going to a place where everyone at work is okay with the fact that I'm out because I have a chemo appointment. Visualizing where you're trying to go and what your reality that you're wanting looks like. You're making sense of what's forward. And then imagine a bridge that's built, that's constructed with beliefs, thoughts, values, attitudes, your history, your hopes, all that stuff is like little cobblestones that create that bridge. And so when we're making sense of our lives, we're saying to ourselves things like, okay, well, I have cancer and I'm heading towards this outcome where I'm thriving regardless, or I, this cancer is not something that's hurting me. This is cancer is an opportunity for me to receive myself and help other people with their journey. This, this obstacle that I'm having in my relationship is a chance for us to get stronger on the other side and see what we can get through together. What's the story you're telling yourself as you go forward and what the meaning is and the true meaning? Now, kind of the antithesis of sense-making, I think sometimes helps us understand what sense-making is, is when we don't have sense. And so like we even say like, that makes no sense to me. You know, you're, you're talking to someone and it's like, it's Greek to me kind of stuff. But it also can be, let's say you have a belief system. You believe, let's say that your boss is a great person and he's looking out for you and he's doing all he can for you. And then something happens, plot moment happens where that actually gets challenged. You do your investigation and you find out whether or not that original story, i.e. he's a good boss, he's a good leader, just got questioned, but that storyline will continue. Or if you find out the data has broken that storyline, imagine the bridge busted and you've fallen off the bridge and you're in what sense-making calls, Brenda Durbin calls the gap. You have no sense. You're not sure what to think. I thought this guy was a good leader, but he's not. Then you have to think about how you're going to construct forward. Am I going to forgive him? Am I going to see him as a whole person that had a human failure? You get my point. So just yeah. like we can do that with a relationship, we can do that with really anything, how we're making sense of our lives. The beauty of it, I think, is it's different than that communication model of I send a message, you receive it, there's noise, there's feedback, and that's all good. That's a 
a communication theory that I'm sure, you know, will always stand the test of time. I learned it in the 80s. It's still around. It's going to be around a while. Sense making is this idea that the way we tell and perform our story matters. To kind of wrap this up, where I took that in my dissertation was examining through both qualitative research, 40 different interviews with people, as well as a survey of well over 600 people. And what we found is kind of what I had found, frankly, in my yoga work, the, the full circle of it was that if we have integration and consistency between the story we're telling ourselves and our self-identity, our self-concept, the story we're able to tell and share in the people that matter in our lives, at work, at home, at play, and in the way we kind of perform our story in the world, who we choose to be or not be, how open we are, etc. There's consistency there when and we have well-being. If there's inconsistency or maybe disclosure kind of is bumping up against each other, then we don't. So an example is, I told you first half how I had discomfort about saying I'm a cancer survivor. To me, performing that role in the world, I had some issues with in the beginning because I thought I didn't deserve that if, if other people are going through such a longer journey than I and that I felt like I didn't want to be disrespectful to this like stigma in my head of what that picture looked like. But then I realized there's also a sense making in that there's others that probably have been through maybe a shorter journey like myself that can actually hopefully inspire folks to get those checkups, to do the prevention. And then I can be an advocate in my own way. And I can be careful about the way I tell my story as I choose to do my best with to give deference to folks who've had a much harder journey to not pretend like I know what they're going through because I certainly don't, but to not also ignore my own and to not be afraid to be open about that. I also do a fair amount in advocacy and violence prevention, a topic for another day. I had a, a difficult relationship that I am a survivor of and I'm very much about helping people to move through and own not just the fact that they're open about what has happened to them, but they're also thinking about the meaning they want to create around that, not just wearing their story, but sharing their story with the ultimate purpose to help give folks hope, to help them show them the way, whatever that looks like. I think that in terms of the cancer diagnosis as well, I hear a lot of times people are asking themselves why. They're searching for a why. And one of the interesting things in my story was that I didn't do that. Felt really comfortable with, I had a good diet. I was in the best shape of my life. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I hadn't brought this on myself. And I was very solid in that belief. I had a thing I had to deal with. I was going to go do it. And I was going to do all the things I needed to do and show up and listen to the input and make my decisions. Mm -hmm. Powerful place. I never went to that why place. And a lot Mm. of times I'll hear people then they're just searching for a why. And the reality is in many, 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 many types of cancer, there is no answer. Mm -hmm. We aren't going to get the, well, you lived at this house and we're exposed to this much pollution and you have this genetic leaning. I mean, we're getting better with genetics. There's, you know, lots of research there. The doctors ironically feel very confident that at some time in the next 20 years, they're going to find some genetic link that I have because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of cancer around me and my family. Mm -hmm. But right now we don't show positive for a genetic causal factor, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. there could just be something that leans me in that direction. And I'll never know. All I can do is continue to live the best healthiest life that I can. And we had talked a little bit earlier, I know compassion fatigue and burnout is 
so prevalent in so many different areas in a professional world where there's a lot of imposed norms. Mm -hmm. Someone decided these are the norms. Yep. Playground rules. Yeah. Yes. And we <laughs> live to the playground rules. Let's, let's be frank. I think we all want the moon and I don't think we should be shy about shooting for it. P patients want to be heard more. We want more time to tell our story. We want to not have to tell our story a million times you know, and feel like for every person who's listening to us, it might be the first time they heard our story. But for us, after we've told it several times, we feel like we're being heard just by the sheer fact that we've repeated ourselves. And then from a provider lens, they are short on time. They get a little, it's not their fault. They, they really want to hear what we're saying, but they're listening for very specific markets markers in their protocol. Between that and the rush of needing to serve so many, they may not always be able to hear as well and have the observational communication skills that you're talking about. And they frankly, you know, they may have had a lot of great science classes in their academic upbringing and they may not have taken a communication class. But just like any other field, communication has kind of grown up. Biology is different than it was when I was an undergrad 30 years ago. And so is communication. We have a science field just like, you know, others do. And that's a, that's a bit of a bandwagon issue for me because people talk all day, they may or may not realize that it's a science, but it is. The beauty of that science is it's very applied. What I'm all about is helping both sides of the equation. Let's try to help the provider to buffer the system's challenges while it's happening. Let's remember they're humans too. They need coping support. They need to just take care of their own physiology so that they don't hit these walls. It's a tragic moment when a person thinks they can't do this job anymore. To avoid that happening, that's all about my work is really about is about helping to solve that. On the one end, let's give patients more information about their journey and have them not feel like they have to fight to be heard. My journey, I admit I haven't had to maybe fight as much, but I have seen my brother has an incredible story. Maybe he could invite him back at a different time. Absolutely. But um, as someone who works as a police officer, it was an amazing series of events that was all built around him not taking no for an answer. And, and he's with us right now because he did that. So, you know, we want patients to feel like they're being heard. We want providers want to be able to listen and not be distracted because they have so much that is being asked of them. It's a time I think we are in right now. I'll just kind of finish by saying this. The technology and all the challenges with electronic health records and other forms of innovation, it's like the best of times and the worst of times. The EHRs aren't always going well. You know, I've worked with people who, who make those and those engineers are working their blanks off trying to get that right, but it's not an easy problem to be solved. There's also the best of times as far as we have all these incredible wearables and, and ways we can track our data. National Institutes for Health is doing some amazing work in trying to create this big cohort called All of Us. I encourage listeners to look at that because they're trying to create a cohort of the American population where they can track people over time. And instead of getting a different cohort for every study, actually have this group cohort that they track over time and look at that kind of precision medicine that you were just talking about. Speaking of sense making, you know, we can't say it's broken now and it's not working for us and then just put our hands up. We've got to have a flag of what we're heading towards. My work with Yoga Med is trying to help medical community to understand yoga more, that it's not just a one size fits all prescription or even referral, that there's nuances in making those referrals that can be helpful to them as providers as well as to patients and to also help patients to be more informed about how yoga and other mind body tools can be helpful to them as a supplement 
supplement to their journey. It may or may not be in replacement of their healthcare journey, but it can definitely be supportive to that journey. And that's really what integrative medicine is all about. It's in that kind of whatever it takes bucket. I love helping our my friends in the yoga world to in Pilates and mind body medicine and all of that, that big swirl there to understand that we've, we keep asking conventional medicine to take us seriously and it's starting, it's happening thanks to the great research that's being done. But we've also got to up our game too. We've got to start measuring what we do. And that's where my kind of fascination with measurement of well-being kind of comes from. And then at the same time, we've got to give the providers what they need and be willing to help them on an individual level, but also help hospital systems. I do some work with risk managers, actually helping them to look at ways that they can look at this this kind of material as risk management and to get ahead of it. It all starts though, I think with what you're doing right here, Jen, and that is by having the conversation. We've got to talk about what's hard if we're going to try to solve it. Sometimes it's about asking a different question. Absolutely. You know, like in the case where I was told that I needed to have a better poker face, instead of asking the question of, hey, what was that about? Mm-hmm. Or what what happened in that situation because she wasn't there? Instead of asking the question, it was like giving a direction. It's an interesting journey to go on as a cancer survivor. Yes. I think it gives us, you mentioned it, that, that elevator moment where yep. you were like, oh, this isn't a dress rehearsal. I think the number is something like 35%, the American Cancer Society says 35% of patients don't return to work after treatment. Hmm. Some take an early retirement. There are other reasons, but a large percentage of those people are those who went through their treatment and then reprioritized their life. Yep. They made a different choice. And one of the things I've heard in terms of compassion fatigue and burnout is this whole idea of plan B. If you weren't doing what you're doing, what's your plan B? Once you've figured out what your plan B would be, you're choosing to do plan A. And in choosing to do plan A, you can very openly say, I'm choosing to be here. Mm -hmm. As soon as I decide not to be here anymore, I have a plan B. And I think that flips the conversation. It's not that I have to be here because this is the only option. Absolutely. Yep. And I think a lot of times we feel like whatever our situation is that we're unhappy with is it's the option because it's the job that we have. It's the thing that's paying us or whatever the case may be. Sometimes if we ask a different question, do you really need that thing tonight at seven o'clock on a Friday? Right. Or- <laughs> Would it be okay if I did it on Monday? And I've asked that question when I was contracting and being paid hourly. No member of that particular person's staff would have asked that question. They would have stayed late. They would have done the thing and it could have been done next week. But I was like, hey, that's great. Would you like me to do that? Because that's going to take me two hours Mm -hmm. and I'm already bumping up on my hours for the week. Right. You want me to add that to the bill? (laughs) And as soon as I put it in that perspective, he's like, you know what? Next week's great. (laughs) That idea of that you're driving that conversation, right? I think I love the idea of, yes, we're asking maybe not the right questions or the the wrong questions. You know, I'm I'm struck by a couple of things as you're talking. I remember when I was blessed to get up, to go up to Pittsburgh and help my brother out. And, you know, the gift that that was is that it forced me to pull over and it was an incredibly, as it always is, you know, incredibly busy time. I remember about three days in, I was there for a week, about three days in, I said to my brother, well, how are you doing? And, And he said, well, this and this. And he started telling me about his medical journey. And I said, how are you doing? Right. And he said, oh, well, 
you know, and I'm, I'm to protect his privacy. He, you know, he went into the disclosure of, of how he was really feeling in the midst of the journey about the story, what it was meaning to him to have this going on again, trying to be as kind of broad scope as I can, you know, it was a mixture, obviously not surprisingly of like trepidation and what it meant to people he cares about. It was also a, ma- a matter of incredible gratitude for the beauty. What happens to us in these hard moments is that like these people come out of nowhere in some cases and are helping us in incredible ways. I know the Mr. Rogers thing about when tough stuff happens, like look for the kind people or something along those lines. The kindness that ends up coming back to you is just, it's just truly beautiful. But to your point, I, I do think we need to be asking better questions and helping the conversation go forward in that direction and having more empathy. The, the system has more integration. So for now, the irony in my, like I said, in my work, I'm heading towards actually coming a bit full circle. Our studio will be a combination of both delivering what you would normally see in a yoga studio classes and, and training, but having it medically cleared in the sense that we'll have science guidelines for exercise as medicine to make sure that patients know which classes are and are not appropriate for their journey. But we're also looking forward to doing additional work to support providers and understanding the practice, whether they refer their patients to us or elsewhere. So there's more kind of cultural understanding really between both sides of that equation and helping those patients with their story through our community setting and then contributing back to the literature. Because one thing I didn't realize as I was going through all that time is that there were some incredible findings about how people could, there is a thing such as narrative medicine, how we shift our narrative and how we make sense of our story really is part of that healing process. And since we don't, with all respect to my medical colleagues, we don't live our lives on the medical chart. We live our lives off of that chart. That's the difference between health, which is like what's on that chart and our well-being and how we're making sense of our lives and how we're inspiring others to do the same. I've been blessed to have so many people help me to make a different sense of my life. I love helping people to open up to that idea that they can make a different sense too. And it's not a a pharmaceutical treatment. (laughs) It doesn't cost anything. The remembering that people, as I think Brene Brown once said, you have the pen. And ultimately, whether the plot line is hard or soft of what's happening, we can't change plot lines a lot, but we we can change how we're going to open ourselves up and, and share our story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here today. There are so many other topics that we could (laughs) dive into and chat about in this regard. Just the alternative options. I love that you're providing a place where people can walk in and understand what is right for them and what maybe is not right for them. Because a lot of times we as movement professionals who have called in a lot of crazy conditions. Unfortunately, we have an aging population and doctors Mm -hmm. look at a 60-something, 70-something-year-old person and they make an assumption. And that 60-something, 70-something, 80-something-year-old person might have an active yoga practice. Absolutely. My dad is 87. He still walks and he'll play ball with you and he'll probably, you know, kick you butt in basketball. Yeah. Shout out to my dad. Yeah. No, I'm totally with you there. Yeah. And if the doctor doesn't ask, they could clear someone and not realize that they're going to go try to do a down dog. There's the other side of it, but absolutely. There's the, the kind of the exercise as medicine piece on the one end that exercise is definitely helpful to prevent manage illness. Then there's this other side that not all exercise prescription fits all. Exercise prescription, another topic for another day, you know, where we're trying to go is kind of the yoga subset of that. Yoga is not just the physical practice. You know, there's a mental practice too. There's kind of touch on a lot of the different kind of dimensions of health with it, which is why that's where we're going. We don't 
tell people to wear the same size shirt. We don't tell people to take the same amount of meds if they're older, younger, taller, shorter, have this condition or that condition. Our practice should not in my opinion, that's the work I did for many years was tailoring and custom fitting those practices and, and training teachers to do that. And I still do that work. But now I think it's time for us to step up that game and share that out. There's a sense of quality control and consistency that comes when you develop a brand. But then there's also, to me, a very strong component of this is not about keeping it kind of isolated. It's about sharing that out. And blessed a few years ago to do some of this work with the World Health Organization and share my movement vitamin protocol, which I'm ecstatic to see is a lot of places. I encourage people to maybe check out those resources. But ultimately, we've got to think outside the box. We have to not be afraid to try new things. So thank you for letting me share that out today. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you and all the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you. And right back at you. Keep going. <laughs> thank you. Thank you again to Dr. Susie Carmack for sharing her passion for health and well-being communication. I know learning about sense-making theory made a huge impact on how I reconciled my story with how others often thought that story should have gone, or perhaps what their sense-making would be. Just like balance looks different for each of us, how we make sense of our story is different for each of us as well. This week, my personal consciousness challenge for you is, on the surface, an easy one. For those of you who know my story, a routine screening mammogram found my cancer at an early stage where it could be managed. Susie's melanoma was found early stage because she took action. Doctors are seeing lower recurrence rates in breast cancer among survivors, possibly because we're getting better at finding and dealing with it early. My challenge for you this week is to schedule the appointment you've been putting off. Is it a routine screening mammogram, a colonoscopy, dermatology skin check, or maybe it's that annual physical that we haven't done for a couple of years? Call right now to make an appointment. Then come on over to the Cancer Cliff Notes Facebook group and tell me what you scheduled so we can cheer for you. Then check in in two weeks for our next episode where I'm talking with a patient advocate. Have a great week and thanks for listening.